Side Broadcast, the best Fox casting either side of the breach. Side broadcast Etherbox Network. Speaking to you live from the heavily locked and bolted but luxuriously padded cell at the Breachside Broadcast Studios, it is I, your announcer. I am here for the next duration, bringing you the opening part of a two part tale. Cliffhangers abound this week, so avoid any sheer drops. As general life rules go, that seems like a pretty solid one to live by. Dawn Serpents are the thing of Earthside legend. Not just because they live exclusively in the Three Kingdoms, information from that backward civilization is strictly controlled by our Thoughtful Guild as a matter of public decency, but also due to the rarity of the beasts. Growing up to eight feet in length with teeth the size of dinner plates, Dawn Serpents are prized signs of wealth amongst rich landowners. One such landowner, by the name of Mr. Shen Shi Ming, has brought his serpent to reside within his mansion in Malifaux. Moving of the creature took many men, let's not even think about the amount of paperwork, the closing off of a number of roads in the Little Kingdom as it was brought through the streets. Tapping his knuckles on the glass cage of the creature, Mr. Ming boasted of how he had managed to subdue the beast with his own two hands. And pigs will fly. Story time! Starting part one of A Long Night in Red Row. A Long Night in Red Row. Marion turned the page avidly, his attention fixed. The heroine, Daphne Poltroon, had managed to escape the clutches of the dastardly yet charming Sir Oswald Appleby. But in her distress, she had rushed out into the frigid night air. With the cliffs that surrounded Appleby Manor on three sides lurking just beyond thick banks of sea foam, Marion feared for Miss Poltroon's headlong flight. The plucky landowner's daughter who was from simple hearty stock, but had drawn the attention of her social betters through her earnest character and handsome looks, had only run a dozen yards before slithering on wet grass and almost falling to her death amid the rocks and crashing waves. Only her poor dead father's good luck charm snagging on a stony projection at the cliff's absolute lip arrested her fall. Even as she hung there, the loose grip of her hands the only thing separating her from her imminent death, Miss Poltroon contemplated her fate. Having unearthed the manipulative Sir Appleby's scheme to marry her, while posing as a wealthy dilettante, but actually being both impoverished and disowned from the Appleby estate, and by means of cruel deception intended to defraud her of the secret fortune that her father had amassed from his long life of diligent labour, which he had set aside in a trust fund until the day his darling daughter and sole living descendant had reached the age of twenty-one. Having secured her affections, he then planned to murder her in cold blood, divined from a whispered conversation she had overheard between Sir Appleby 
and his twisted half-sized manservant calico and poor daphne had fled the house but not before she had toppled a vase of flowers and alerted her betrothed to the sound of smashing porcelain marian read on transfixed a shape was coalescing out of the yellow fog the long-limbed and terrible shape of her once beloved husband-to-be and now architect of her robbery and violent dispatch oswald appleby in his hand was a long glinting knife daphne shrieked with fear but the sound was swallowed by the crashing waves below the knife came ever closer until the door banged open and deputy portmanteau clumped into the office them cowboys is back he said by way of greeting short and compact portmanteau's extremities seemed to have continued growing enthusiastically long after the bulk of him had reached a satisfactory size his nose was a giant bulbous affair that coupled with jug-handled ears made the remainder of his face seem like an afterthought he carried a twin-barrel scattergun in his hands his fat finger barely able to squeeze into the trigger guard marian reluctantly closed the cliffs of appleby and laid it on the desk and portmanteau's expression never changed the sheriff nodded clucked his tongue and got to his feet while a head taller than his deputy sheriff marion barber seemed struck by the same inconsistency of proportion but to different effect he possessed a huge barrel chest and uncommonly broad shoulders supported on legs that were long but looked a shade too thin to prop up his upper half long ape arms and a round moon face with crammed features added to the notion that the sheriff was a big man but by no means a handsome one leaving his gun belt and pistol marion instead took a lead cord billy club from his desk drawer and tucked it into his pants in his experience as sheriff when men were not confronted by a gun they were less inclined to use one themselves with portmanteau whistling casually behind him marion headed down the street to the gold tooth low-hanging pot-bellied clouds were scudding in from the south and the freshening breeze smelled like rain even though it was barely four o'clock with another two hours of waning sunlight the gas lamps along main street were already lit against the encroaching gloom it looked like a powerful storm was on its way ivy's shrill shouting could already be heard some distance from the saloon for those not familiar with the residents of red row one could be forgiven for thinking a ruckus had already kicked off however ivy's shouting was a common occurrence at the gold tooth this shouting usually took place alongside the cylinder piano and was roughly in accordance with the music although her pitch not to mention her volume were often at odds with the musical mechanism marion had been in the gold tooth many times to witness these performances and was still unclear whether ivy was attempting to sing along with the piano or simply drown it out and we'll meet you there on that sunny sunny day she was shouting as marion stepped up onto the saloon's porch and looked over the swing doors my lovely jackie oh, oh. there she stood red-faced and tender-necked as she roared out the final syllables wearing her only evening gown and enough face makeup to suggest her compact had exploded marion could see the cylinder of the barrel organ revolving 
but any melody it might have been producing was inaudible against Ivy's passionate crescendo. She ended, no doubt as abruptly as she had begun, and there was a smattering of applause from the poker table to her right. As she took her bow, Marion turned his attention to the gamblers. Four men, all dust and mud-marked from cattle droving, were well lubricated with Young's whiskey and wearing iron. They didn't look quite drunk enough yet to do something truly stupid, but Marion had a nose for this kind of thing, and knew it was always better to intervene sooner rather than later. He stepped into the saloon as the cowboys turned back to their game, approaching the bar where Vale and Sam and Grizzly Dick sat like three wise monkeys on stools, nursing their shot glasses. Young hovered behind the bar. His five-foot pleated pigtail wrapped twice around his thick neck and draped down his back. He screwed a spotless bar towel into a shot glass and stacked it atop a large pyramid of equally pristine others. Marion, he said with a nod of greeting. Young, Marion replied, and slid onto the free bar stool alongside Grizzly Dick. With limited information, one is inclined to make assumptions. When the name Grizzly Dick is mentioned, the mind is immediately filled with images of a titanic hirsute man with legs like tree trunks and an untarned beard festooned with bits of twig and the odd bird egg. Take the aforementioned twigs, form them into the crude shape of a stick man, and soak them in whiskey for fifty years. That is Grizzly Dick. The withered prospector weighed sixty pounds soaking wet, and most of that was his boots and a nose like a sickle blade. In the nine years Marion had been in Red Row, first as deputy and then sheriff, he had never once seen Grizzly Dick eat. Looking at the cadaverous oldster, it was easy to imagine that he hadn't. At Dick's pointy shoulder sat Vale and Sam, very much two peas in a pod. Both were portly and generously humoured, and both ran stores in town. Vale the grain and feed store, and Sam the barber's dental practice and surgery. They turned to welcome Marion, and rolled their eyes at the sodden cowboys behind them. Back for more, eh? Vale said. Hope not, Marion said by way of reply. Ah, oh, those boys won't be no trouble this time, Sheriff, Vale laughed, showing multiple gaps where Sam had practiced his art. The licking they got last week took the fire right out of them. Well, Marion said folding his big hands carefully on the scuffed bar. Whiskey has a way of putting the fire back into one man. Ivy arrived at the bar, resting a manicured hand on Marion's shoulder. Buy me a drink, Sheriff, she breathed. He waved a finger at Young. He produced a bottle of rich, dark rum and poured the aging songstress a measure. Ivy took the glass, raised it in silent salute, and tossed the contents down her neck. I caught the last few bars there, Ivy, Marion said. I think your voice is improving. Ivy beamed. Why, thank you, Sheriff. It's always nice to meet a fan. He smiled and touched his hat. He liked Ivy, despite her singing. And technically, he had been telling the truth. The saloon lit up momentarily, and all eyes turned toward the window. A second later, there was a vicious crack rumble of thunder that rattled Young's glass pyramid. A second later, there was a vicious crack rumble of thunder that rattled Young's glass pyramid. The air outside was still dry, 
but the clouds were crowding over the town now, and a downpour wasn't far away. Sheriff! cried a delighted voice. Marion twisted on his stool and saw that all four cowboys were staring across at him, all grinning and aligned like they were. The accumulation of teeth he'd knocked out of their heads the previous week made them a dead ringer for the cylinder piano's keyboard. Boys, he said, touching his hat again, having a good evening? Yes, sir, said the one he vaguely recalled as Dirty Ben or Dusty Bill or something. Only Cletus here has me down to my last gilder. He'll have me down to my long johns any minute, less than Lady Luck throws me a bone. Well, I wouldn't want to see that happen. So how about I buy you boys a cup of coffee and you can rethink your strategy? Powerful kind of you, Sheriff, said Cletus. I surely wasn't looking forward to seeing Bill and his dirty smalls. The four of them laughed. Coffee, please, young, Marion said. And then in a lower tone, make it strong. The Three Kingdoms native nodded with a smirk and took the cowboy's four cups of steaming black. There was another flash of lightning and boom of thunder. Marion took a cup of coffee for himself and toyed with the idea of heading back to the office before the rain hit. Portmanteau had been right to warn him of the cowboys being back. But this time they seemed much more at ease, both with themselves and Marion's presence. Besides, if they were happy to drink coffee instead of whiskey, he doubted there would be a repeat of last week's ugly brawl. If he got back to his office before the rain came on, he could get that last half-chapter of The Cliffs of Appleby finished. He surely hated leaving the story at such a tense point. Gulping down the bitter coffee, he got to his feet, straightened his waistcoat, and left a coin on the bar. You gentlemen have a good night now, he said to the cowboys. Their faces were flushed, but their moods were buoyant, and showed none of the abrasive menace they displayed the week before. Thank you, Sheriff, said Bill. We surely will. Marion had gotten as far as the doors of the saloon when someone upended a basin of water from the porch roof. Only it wasn't a basin. It was rain. Marion could have been standing behind a waterfall. He watched it blast the dust road into mud and thought of his rain slicker hanging on its hook behind the door of his office. Oh, hell, he muttered. Out in the tempestuous night, a dark shape moved in the shadows. Unnaturally tall and unnaturally long, this shape clambered slowly up a rise toward town. Two baleful yellow eyes threw scant illumination on the ground before it, and its laborious progress was marked with a rasping hissing sound. White smoke, or perhaps steam, vented steadily from its hindquarters, becoming more visible as the pelting rain cooled the air. Eight iron-shod wheels, each the height of a man, revolved with grim determination, propelling the vehicle forward. Atop the bizarre construct sat a man shrouded in a heavy waxed coat and wide-brimmed hat, perched on a bench seat at the vehicle's forefront, much like a wagon driver, and some fifteen feet off the ground. Only this wagon had no horses, and no harnesses. Instead, a bewildering forest of brass levers, wheels, and brake handles sprang up around the driver in such profusion that it appeared he operated it more through guesswork than any identifiable skill. Nevertheless, 
the tall wagon made its way into the town of Red Row, deftly avoiding potholes in the more defined rivers of muddy water that had begun to stream down the slope. As it rumbled past the first of the town's gas lamps, along its wooden flank became visible the livery. Witness the wonder of Bertram Venn, master craftsman and ingenious designer of the modern age. Purchase the technology of tomorrow at yesterday's prices. No refunds or exchanges. Creaking, rattling and hissing, the iron and wood oddity rolled into the centre of town. Damn! whistled Grizzly Dick. The oldster had appeared at Marion's shoulder to regard the weather, but instead was gawping at the wooden wall rolling up Main Street. Marion himself was less impressed. A wagon that tall served no real purpose, and he'd always been an advocate of technology in its proper place. Where a team of horses would have more than sufficed, here instead was a steaming and clanking device that pushed rather than pulled. Marion considered such invention to be a form of sly arrogance, to take the time to think up and build a machine that served the same purpose as a horse, only less well and with greater effort. Marion didn't doubt that this diminished return had been conveniently lost amid the mugging and backslapping from the inventor's fellow intellectuals. He watched the contrivance grind to a halt. The shape atop it yanked levers and wheels until the clunking and hissing died away and then scrambled deftly down a brass ladder to the muddy ground. Ho there, the figure called, as it waded through ankle-deep mud and up to the relative shelter of the saloon porch. Marion stepped aside to accommodate the new arrival. Now revealed in the gaslight to be a compact and weather-worn man. When he pulled off his soaked hat, Marion noted silver-gray hair, scraped back into a rat-tail, and a sharp goatee dyed crimson. Welcome to Red Row, the sheriff offered along with his hand. The smaller man took it and gave it a brief and insincere yank. Bertram Venn, he replied breezily, unparalleled inventor, travelling entrepreneur, at your service, sir. I'm Sheriff Barber, and this here is Grizzly Dick. Normally Marion would have introduced himself with his Christian name, but something about this man made him want to keep the badge between them. The wagon driver seemed more concerned with shaking the rain off than acknowledging the town residents, but Marion had an inkling there was one person on the porch that Venn would be interested in talking about. That's an unusual accent, Mr. Venn. I travel extensively, Venn said, busy unfastening the buckles on his slicker. My skills are much in demand, and I find myself drawn from one land to the next. I pick up a bit of this, a touch of that. Well, sir, perhaps you should allow yourself to be drawn on into the saloon for a hot coffee. Tonight's not the night for porch conversations. Yes, you say, a fine idea, he said as he flapped his wet hat and pushed through the swing doors. Marion looked at Grizzly Dick. Apparently he travels extensively. Well, la de damn dog, the old man huffed. When Marion woke, his first thought was, damn it, fell asleep in my chair again. Sitting up was an exercise in agony. His legs, propped up on his desk and crossed at the ankles, had gone to sleep, and his spine felt like glass as he slowly edged his weight forward and began to roll his cramped shoulders. 
With a driving rein, he'd allowed Grizzly Dick to talk him into one last whiskey to fortify him against the elements. After that, his memory became increasingly smeared. He remembered a drunken sing-along with one arm around Ivy, and the other around Young, and possibly arm-wrestling Dusty Bill or Cletus. Or both. Now the grey morning sun was streaming in through his office window, and there was a taste of old whiskey on his tongue. Strangely, he didn't feel hungover, merely disconnected. The cliffs of Appleby still sat where he'd left it on his desk. He'd been too tired and drunk last night to finish it. He was half tempted to pick it up. But his stomach growled like an angry bear. He fetched his hat and slicker, which had spent the night on the hook behind the door, and stepped down onto the street to find breakfast. fresher out here, and carried an unseasonable chill. But behind the thick cotton of the clouds, he could sense the sun struggling to break through. The rain had quit at some point during the night, but the street was waterlogged and awash with deep, muddy puddles. The houses looked glossy and slick, their timber darkened with moisture. Down by the gold tooth, Ben's wagon was still parked, and a modest crowd had gathered around him. Ben himself was standing on a platform, ringed by watching eyes, and was making some ostentatious declaration or other in a long-sleeved flannel gown. Whatever he was boasting, it would no doubt involve a necessary separation of the audience from their script. 
Sure enough, as he drew nearer, he began to make out the play. Quite like this one. Have you ever seen such craftsmanship? Have you ever seen such vibrancy? And rest assured, esteemed ladies and gentlemen, that the intricacy and ingenuity contained within this trinket is every bit as breathtaking as its exterior. Van was holding up a tin toy, a carousel that nestled in the palm of his hand. Marion could see a dozen tiny ponies and riders, each articulated separately and connected to the central axis by silver rods as fine as hairs. The entire device was enameled and lacquered in bright primary colors that shone in defiance of the brooding sky above. There was even a delicate metallic tune tinkling from the toy as the minute riders bobbed around and around. Awful expensive for a toy, ain't it? asked Skeet Miller. His grimy blacksmith hands were stuffed deeply and self-consciously into his overall pockets, well away from the delicate objects on display. My wares are not cheap, acknowledged Van. But were you to travel Malifaux or to Paris, you would not find wares to rival their quality. Why, you would pay twice as much for something half as good. Notice, if you would, ladies and gentlemen, how the clockwork music box within holds no less than twelve melodies, each and any of which are immediately accessible by turning the relevant pony and rider so. With a thin gold rod somewhere between a pencil and needle, Ven turned one of the glittering carousel riders. Immediately the device began to play the Duke and the Lady. There was a pleased murmur from the crowd. And here we have Begging Billy, Ven continued, turning their attention to a painted metal dog only four inches or so high at the shoulder. A faithful and loving Spaniel, whose only wish is to perform tricks for the child. See how he begs for favor. He lifted a tin bone painted white and waved it before the dog's nose. The artificial animal rose up on its hind legs and bobbed in time with the bone. With each movement, the dog made a metallic clap that sounded eerily like a bark. Little Bessie Miller squealed and yanked on her father's overalls. Daddy, look at him! Ben's eyes glinted at her reaction. Leaning low over his carefully laid out table, he handed her the metal bone. With some training, he said, begging Billy shall perform all manner of tricks sweetly. Bessie shook the bone in front of the bobbing tin dog. It bobbed and barked, and then flipped head over heels. The blacksmith's daughter squealed even louder, and there were gasps and laughs from the crowd. Clever, Marion admitted. Magnets and mechanisms, Ben said dismissively, but the children loved them so. Are toys the only things you build? The only things I choose to, Ben corrected. I have dallied with other devices in my time, but there is no equal to the pleasure my craft brings to the little ones. Sure enough, Bessie seemed totally enchanted with the mechanical dog. He was about to ask Ven how much he wanted for it, when Ivy burst through the gold-toothed swing doors behind them with crimson hands raised over her head. Blood! she shrieked. The four cowboys were dead. Their boots and hats lay where they'd been discarded across the floor. All four men lay in the huge guest bed, top to tail with two heads and four feet at either end. There had apparently been very little struggle, judging by the fact they were still in the bed. 
though more jumbled and tangled than if they'd slept the night through undisturbed. The feather comforter was drenched in blood. It had so cleaned through the mattress and pooled under the bed. No one gets in here but me and Portmanteau, Marion told Young. There was a gaggle of onlookers downstairs, but the deputy was standing on the bottom step with his scattergun, and for the moment he had the scene to himself. And send Sam up when he gets here. Young nodded, his face abnormally jaundiced. Treading carefully, Marion reached the bed and pulled back the cover. It was heavy with clotting liquid and made a wet peeling sound as it came away from the corpses. Their long johns were as saturated as the sheets they lay on. From neck to knees, he mused. A hell of a lot of blood. Marion had seen blood and death before, but never quite like this. He'd shot a handful of men in his time as sheriff. One he'd killed with a scattergun and had seen a man cut open at the shoulder with a corn scythe back in Duke's quarry. They'd bled a lot, or so it had seemed at the time. But not like this. Sam Ford arrived a minute or two later, and his mouth became a thin, worried line when he saw the cowboys. Marion watched the surgeon painstakingly roll both striped sleeves up before checking each man in turn. Looking in their eyes and mouths, lifting an arm and checking rigidity. What do you think, Sam? he asked at length. Hell, I don't know, Sheriff, the portly man said. You want a tooth pulled or a cut sewn up, I'm your man, but this is... is... murder, Marion finished for him. Sam poked a finger at the closest corpse's chest. It was Cletus. Six or seven hours ago, they'd shared a drink. Something here... Sam said, pulling down the sodden fabric of Cletus Longjohns. He bared a hairy chest smeared with blood that was turning black and crusty. A small triangular cut sat on the left side, just below the nipple. See this? Looks like a knife wound, maybe. Funny sort of knife to leave a mark like that. Three edges? Who would have a knife like that? I aim to find out, Sam. The surgeon went along with four men. Each one had a slender stab wound in his chest, almost identically placed. Well, that's how it happened. That's where all this blood came from. Straight in. Straight through the heart. Skatook. Sam jabbed with a single index finger. They'd have died real quick. Bled out in 20, maybe 30 seconds. Marion mused while Sam washed his hands in the water bowl on the dresser. Sam, keep this thing under your hat for now. I don't want people getting jumpy. These boys were a real handful last time they were in town. Who knows who else they've wronged before they came here last night. Could be this was an old score. Could be, Sheriff. Sam was rolling down his striped sleeves and rebuttoning them. Get Vale and Grizzly Dick and get Skeet. We'll need his wagon. Tell him to bring it around back. And tell Ivy we'll need basins of water and some old sheets to wrap them in. And find somebody with a horse. I want to send a rider out to the bar tea. McCullum will want to know what's happened to four of his boys. Will do. When the surgeon had left, 
Marion stood with his hands on his hips and a scowl on his face. A hell of a thing to happen, he thought. Snatches of the cowboys' laughing faces came to him, blurred with whiskey. They had been rough boys, but after that first spat, he'd rather taken a shine to them. They sure didn't deserve to die in their long johns, crammed into an old bed like hairy sardines. Marion's gaze had fallen to the floor, and had settled on something curious. There were bloody marks on the wood that looked out of place. He got down on a knee and took a closer look. Little oval splats of blood like prints a child would make with paint and a carved-up potato. Hunkering down lower, he looked under the bed and immediately made a face. The coppery stink was much stronger down here. More strangeness. Four clean spots under the bed. Four angular spaces on the wooden floor, while all around was awash with sticky, clotting blood. The prints, the tracks, came from here, pattering across the floor in a run of overlapping circles. They formed an erratic trail from the bed to the wall under the window. He saw scuffs and beads and dribbles of blood on the cheap gilded wallpaper, and more on the window ledge. The window stood open. Outside was a knot of excited laughing townsfolk and an unnaturally tall wagon. In the midst of it was a stranger. He looked up at the sheriff momentarily and touched his brow. Who'd have a knife like that, Sam had asked. Who indeed? story right now, but where would be the fun in that? Keep your ears pinned open with the device of your choosing. Until next time, you won't want to miss it. Returning to a story from earlier, and lo, how the mighty have fallen. It is like we always say, eight-foot-long, fire-breathing serpents may be a cute idea for our pets when they're babies, but they do grow up. The dawn serpent from our opening news story has escaped from its cage. Mr. Ming was not available for comment. His top half was on his balcony. His bottom half was inside the creature's old home. His midsection was in various places, being tidied up by his cleaners. Ouch. As ever, stay safe out there, listeners, because bad things happen.